Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it. We are continuing our look at the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Gen- uh, sorry, Matthew 5. We're in verses 17 to 20 today, uh, which is sort of the overview of the next section that Jesus is going to be talking about. So what we want to talk about today is jots and tittles. Um, those are interesting words, and we're going to look at where they come from and how they apply in Jewish law. So Jesus begins by saying, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You could uh, that the, the Greek word there is iota. So that's the reason it's translated that way. In some other places, it's translated as jots and tittles. That would be my preference, because jots and tittles actually have meaning, <laughs> as opposed to iotas and dots, And because we're talking about the Jewish law, which would have been in Hebrew. And so uh, um, jots and tittles have to do with Judaism. And so we can lose sight of what we're doing here when we translate it, not an iota or a dot, because those things uh, don't have the same force, they don't have the same meaning. So when Jesus says, do you think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? Don't think that, he says. I didn't come to abolish any of those things. And what he means is to destroy them, to demolish them, is what it means. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. <clears throat> and what does he mean when he says that? It's, it's an important thing to note. Jesus doesn't say, I've come to overthrow the law and the prophets. I haven't come to overthrow all the stuff that came before me. No, I've come to fulfill all those things. And so he's filling two, fulfilling two different things, right? He's fulfilling the law and fulfilling the prophets. And those are two very distinct and different things. To fulfill the law is to keep it perfectly, without exception. To fulfill the prophets is to do everything the prophet said Messiah would do. He's not making it that clear at this point in his ministry that he's the Messiah, but people have already concluded that. We've already seen that, that the first disciples had concluded that Jesus was the Messiah, and they followed him. John had already concluded Jesus was Messiah. So we, we see people already saying that, and so when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the prophets— He's talking about fulfilling the righteousness of the prophets, but also fulfilling the prophetic announcement concerning the Messiah. And what does it mean to fulfill the righteousness that the prophets announced? Well, it means to focus on things like justice and mercy. That's one of the things that are, that are constantly criticized about the people in any given prophetic age, is that they're, they're good at keeping these other little things, but they're not good at doing the big things, like justice and mercy. They're focusing on the wrong things, is what the prophetic critique typically is of the people, unless they're just straight-up apostate. I mean, you've got, you've got two different options. One is they're straight-up apostate, or what, like with Hosea, for instance, they, they bring a multitude of sacrifices because it's a time of great prosperity, and they want the good times to continue. And so they bring the sacrifices, but they're also sacrificing to Baal. So they're keeping these little things in the law, but they're not keeping the bigger side of it. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of doing exactly that. 
you're good at tithing, mint, cumin, and dill, but you keep other things. You say anything that would have been given to my parents for their support is Corbin, which means that I've already dedicated it and set it aside for the temple. So, hey, tough luck for you. And so he's saying you're not even loving your parents, much less your neighbors, generically. And Jesus says, I've come to fulfill all of that. He said, I want to show you how you can keep every little part of the law while at the same time fulfilling the larger obligations, which will be the obligations he leaves on us, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is going to show us how to merge both those things together, how to keep all that part of the law. Now, does that mean that the law, the Old Testament law, is binding on us as Christians? The answer is no. And the reason it's not binding on us is because Jesus has already fulfilled it, and his righteousness in fulfilling all that is then imputed to us at the cross when we make the exchange of confessing our sins and putting those on him, then he puts his righteousness on us. But does that mean the law no longer has any purpose? And the answer to that question is no. It doesn't mean that at all. I had somebody in my... um, in my congregation once, who talked to me frequently whenever I would mention anything to do with the law, and he would say, no, because you are the righteousness of God. You have Christ in you. And my response is, well, the problem is, yes, I do have the Holy Spirit, but I can be misled. And that's one of the biggest problems I believe in the church today is is that, that whenever the Spirit leads me out of conformity with what I know God would have for my life, then I have to believe then that that spirit that's leading me astray is not of God. And I recognize that until I die, I'm a mixed chalice. In other words, I have the spirit of God, but also I haven't completely been rid of the spirit of the age, the spirit of of, of man, I guess is maybe a way to say it, Um, the, the spirit of being deceived. I can still be deceived. Christians are deceived all the time. Spirit-filled Christians are deceived all the time. I mean, I've seen it in so many churches where they follow after a leader who ends up not being the person that they claim to be. I've seen um, Christians in churches get deceived financially by people. And so we can still be deceived, and so the law is there. It's what's called the fourth use of the law, which is to say, let me check what I think I'm hearing here, and see if it fits with God's Word. And if it doesn't, then I have to reject what I think I'm hearing internally. And so that's the, the, the fourth use of the law, is to give us check on what we feel and what we think. So then we, can, we have the Word, and we can drop back onto that. So Jesus is going to fulfill all of it, but when he says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, or not a jot or a tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished, he's making an enormous statement there. And, and that says that it's still binding, still in force. Now, it's binding— on those who have not taken on Jesus, who have not believed in him. They're under the law. I'm no longer under the law because Jesus fulfilled the law on my behalf. So if you're not under the law, if you're not under Jesus, then you're under the law, and you'll be judged according to the law. And Paul says, you don't, nobody has an excuse. That's, what, that's his whole argument in Romans 1, is, is that even people who've never heard the gospel have no excuse for not knowing 
God's will and God's law because you have the witness of creation. And so you're not absolved simply because you haven't heard this. You have the witness of creation, and what have you done with that? Because it tells you certain things about God. So when Jesus says not a jot or tittle will pass from the law, I want you to understand what jots and tittles are. So the jot, it represents, it, it, the, the word iota, which is the Greek word used there, it it's actually means, le, it's, it's a specific letter of the Greek alphabet, and it's the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. But likewise, a jot could be a yod, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. A tittle is an extra pin mark, right? So the letters can look very much alike, but there's an, there, there's an extension on a letter, and that extension changes it from one letter to a different letter. And so the tittle is that little piece that makes the change. By the time of Jesus, those jots and tittles referred to something different. They referred to jots and tittles, yodes and tittles, but they referred to something else as well. And what is that something else? That something else is what's known as the oral law, which is codified in the Talmud about a, a hundred years plus later, maybe 150 years after Jesus. And <clears throat> so that's the oral law. But the belief of Judaism is, is that that oral law had been given at Sinai. And part of it Moses understood, but part of it Moses didn't understand. Let me read you a little midrash on that whole thing, that two Torahs were given at Sinai. So the Talmud tells us of the day that Moses was jettisoned more than a thousand years ago into the future, into the classroom of one of the greatest sages, Rabbi Akiva. Now, Rabbi Akiva was born in about 50 AD. So he's born about 15 years or so after the death of Jesus. And then he lived and was one of the, he was the great sage of the time from then until about 135 AD when he was put to death by the Romans because he refused to stop teaching Torah when they told him to. So Moses wanted to see how Torah received at Sinai would hold up against the passage of time. And, and the funny thing is, what happens is, he's taken up into the cloud, and, and they say then that he went up into the cloud, which is outside and above the mountain, into the heavens, and God's there working on writing the Torah. And, and he's taken a lot of care over this. He's taken care over jots and tittles. This is, so this is a Talmudic thing, remember, so this is in, in, from Midrash. So he goes up, and God's working very diligently over these jots and tittles, not the words themselves, but these little almost punctuation marks. And God's taking great care of those. Moses, Moses wants to know, why? why? Why are you doing that? Why, why are you taking such great care of that? Just, just give it to me, and I can go back down the mountain now. But God took great care over these things because he said that ultimately— there's going to be a rabbi in the future named Akiva, and Akiva is going to find, derive countless laws from every jot and tittle contained in the original Torah. And that's largely what the Talmud does. It expands the fence around the law. It determines what are the limits of something like a vow. And if a husband can dissolve a wife's vow, when does he have to do that? In what circumstances can he do that? And what circumstances can he not do that? So these are the, quote, laws that Rabbi Akiva is, is going to sort out according to this story. So, and Moses says, I have to see that. And so God says, all right, turn around. 
and God snaps his fingers, and, and then suddenly Moses has jumped forward a couple thousand years into the future, and, and now he is in a classroom, and Rabbi Akiva is up front teaching. He's excited. Moses is happy because the Torah has survived all those years after Sinai. But soon he, he begins to feel faint because he doesn't understand anything that's being said. And it's because these jots and tittles are the application of the law to current circumstances. He doesn't know what Roman-occupied Israel will look like and what, what things will look like a couple thousand years into the future. I mean, it's sort of like taking the Jetsons and, in the 1960s and saying that's what 2020 is going to look like. They didn't know about COVID. Um, but <laughs> so that, that's the essential thing. And, and those, so those jots and tittles are how do you apply those laws in a given circumstance where you find yourself? And that's the important thing is the application of the law. But then that becomes not just the application, it also becomes the law in the sense that it's the oral law. So now you have to know both these things. In order to interpret the, the Torah, you need the Talmud, because that's the rabbinic interpretations of those laws. And so that's exactly what Moses drops down into, and he doesn't understand because he doesn't have the cultural understanding to, uh, to see what Rabbi Akiva is talking to. And so he's, he's really disoriented, and, and he's not feeling good about this. And during a wildly, during a particularly heated debate, though, a student asked Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi, what's the source of the authority of these teachings? And Rabbi Akiva's response is, this is the law that was given to Moses at Sinai. And so what he sees is, is, is that, that, yes, I got the law at Sinai. I don't understand this because I don't understand the context that Rabbi Akiva is working in. And so when we say we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God, th that's sort of what it is. The Holy Spirit kind of acts as in the same capacity Jews understand the Talmud. The Holy Spirit teaches us how to conform to a law that was given thousands of years ago at Sinai in our current circumstance. So it won't take us out of conformity with the law. It'll show us how to conform to the law in our context. And so that's exactly what the oral law, that's the purpose of the oral law. And Jesus says in, here in today's passage that I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, even the jots and tittles. So when he said that, it would have had an immediate context to them, and they would know that he was talking about the oral law. So he's talking about the law, the prophets, and the oral law when he says this. And he says, not any of that will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, that begs the question, then, what's going to be, what will pass from the law after it's accomplished? Interesting question, right? Does the moral law? No. The moral law won't change. But Jesus tells us that the temple is going to be destroyed, so we know that the ritual law will change. We know it'll be done away with. You can't make sacrifices anymore. You can't do these things. And so Jesus is pointing us to the important things that will remain. Right? So it's the moral law. So that's going to remain. That is, that's an eternal, unchanging thing. While he's already signaling that once this is accomplished, once his work is finished, then some other parts of the law will change. And then he tells us what that'll be when he tells us that the temple's going to be destroyed. 
So that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. But but now he's going to give us the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, all that kind of stuff, in order to show us in our context, 2,000 years after him, how to apply God's moral law in our day and in our lives. So he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that relates then over to one of the last things Jesus does, which is when he gives the great commission, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he's saying here applies to the Great Commission. And the way that it applies to the Great Commission is to say, if you fulfill the Great Commission, that if you baptize, you make disciples of all nations, and you teach them to obey everything that I've commanded, then you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly how those things tie themselves together. So Jesus says, if you relax one of the least of the commandments... So he's, he's not talking about the first and great commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. He's talking about the others. He says you can't relax those things. And, and that's what's going to happen in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, is, is that he's not going to relax it. He's going to tighten it. He's going to make it even harder to absolve yourself. And so what he's saying is, is that, that if you move away from the, the tightening of a commandment, if you if you expand the fence broadly to say, well, you can, you know, okay, you can do these things without violating it, then then he says, no, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If you relax a commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called least. If, however, you do them and teach them, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you see, you can't just teach. You also have to do. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, you know, these are the guys who are the exemplars right now for the nation. That, that these Pharisees and scribes, these who, who dedicate themselves to these least commandments, like the tithing, you tithe your mint, dill, and cumin, you know, that's the least kind of commandment of tithing, but you leave undone these other important things he says you got to do it all. And, and unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Everybody there was completely demotivated at that moment. That They were demoralized by that saying because they knew, I, I can't do that. If I could, I would be doing it now. And, and they hold these guys up as paragons of virtue and righteousness. And Jesus says that's not enough. And the people out in the wilderness were going, yeah, that's exactly right. It's not enough. But, but that doesn't mean Jesus is affirming them. What he's saying here is you have no hope. It's the same message Paul preaches through the first 11 chapters of Romans. You have no hope. Your righteousness is not going to exceed that. But Jesus gives the answer ultimately in the cross because his righteousness did exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And now, by that great exchange of giving your sins to him, you receive that righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Without Jesus, we have no hope at all. But we have Jesus, so we have all the hope in the world and all the hope in the world to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.